Good morning. Good to see you. We're going to get right to work this morning. Quick, uh, quick little note, though, about um, Aaron Gibbs, who you saw on the video. We support he and his wife uh, monthly as a church family, and, uh, and he sent that video out via email, and I just asked if I could pass it on, and he said, yes, absolutely. And he uh, is connected to Benjamin Morrison, who we've also been talking about the last few weeks, and so those guys are working together and in communication, and Aaron and his crew are actually starting to take in some people from Ben's church in Ukraine. So uh, there's just incredible partnership going on there. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so humbled to get a front row seat to it and just see how they're working together. I love it. Um, if you are new with us, if, you, if this is your first Sunday with us, we have been in a series called The Whole Story. And what we're trying to do is trace the storyline of the scriptures and really get a feel for how all of the Bible is not a dissected, fragmented group of ancient writings, but are actually a cohesive whole. They tell one story. They tell many stories throughout, but they're actually telling one unified story that tells the history of this Messiah who would come to take away the sins of the world, save his people from their sins, Jesus of Nazareth. So over the last five weeks or so, we've spent the last, uh, we've spent all of our time actually in Genesis. In just the first handful, the first four weeks were in Genesis 1 through 3. And then last week we spent some time in Genesis chapter 12. And what we've been doing is tracing the beginning of the Bible storyline. And so now that some of that foundation is built, um, we have not gotten into all of the details. Remember, this is a big, like, um, high-level flyover. But we are building a foundation. Now we're going to pick up the pace significantly. And when I say significantly, I mean like 40 chapters about 80 years or so of human history. One thing that we have been doing is we've been building the story so far. And so every week we build on this storyline. If you do not have a study guide, I would invite you to grab one. They look like the, the, the cover art that you saw on the screen just a moment ago. Somebody's holding one up right over here. There's actually, they're on the table um, near the wall over there. You're, you're welcome at any point to, to get up and to grab one of those. We'd love for you to have one. Um, this is the story so far. See, beautiful Vanna's over here, just waving them up in the air. If you'd like one, Sharon will bring one over to you this morning. Um, here is the story so far. It's this, that God has created a kingdom, and he is the king. And, there's the word but in there, but I like the word and better. And he has created human beings or made human beings to represent him in his kingdom. These human beings were Adam and Eve, but they rejected the call. And this call that God gave them led to, this rejection of the call that God gave them led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve to rebel against God. God has promised to defeat this serpent through the seed or the offspring of the woman who is also the seed of Abraham. We talked about this last week through Abraham's family. Now this week, and specifically Judah's royal seed, the covenant blessings would come to the world. So we're fast forwarding all the way to Genesis chapter 49 this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, that's the first book of the scriptures. The big numbers, 4-9, those are the ones you're looking for. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 10. This is a prophecy that Judah's dad, Isaac, who gets renamed to Israel, we'll cover all that in a little bit, 
gives to Judah. Uh, It's saying something about who Judah has been, and it's also saying something about who Judah will be and who his offspring, what his offspring will be like. So if you don't understand all of it, don't worry. That's okay. We're going to walk through it this morning a bit. This is what Jacob or Israel said to his son Judah. He said, Judah, verse 8 of chapter 49, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That means he's going to be a conqueror. He's going to be authoritative. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Notice we sang earlier this morning, lion of Judah. That's where this phrase, lion of Judah, originates here. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is saying, foreshadowing, that those who come from Judah are going to be kings. This scepter will not depart, nor the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is language showing, um, showing authority, kingly authority. Binding his foal, that's a young horse, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's all kind of confusing. It's poetic language to say there's coming an age of great prosperity that many theologians believe is the kingdom of David and then will be the kingdom of God initiated through Jesus Christ. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is God's word. Now, this is the passage that we're aiming for this morning because it's an important foreshadowing of Jesus as the King of Kings. This is all setting up a coming Messiah thousands of years later. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start at the end of the story. We're going to start at the very end. We're going to acknowledge Jesus as sovereign King I've been wrestling with a fair bit of tension in this series, not wanting to get too far ahead of ourselves and start talking about Jesus right away, but let some of that foundation be built. And this morning, we we will acknowledge Jesus as the sovereign king who descends from a long line of royal kings. This King Jesus that we read about in our New Testament, he possesses what a prophet in in the Old Testament named Daniel Forecasts, And this is what Daniel writes in uh, about this coming Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. To him, to this Messiah, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom for a purpose that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom won that shall not be destroyed. This is what the prophet Daniel is writing about this coming Messiah. Now, throughout our Bible, starting in our Old Testament, pretty early on, God is described as Lord of Lords. You've probably heard a phrase like this, Lord of Lords, God of Gods, King of Kings. Listen to this, and for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of Gods, a superlative there. He's the best. He's superior. And he is Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no 
bribe. He is completely holy and perfect in his authority. As this biblical storyline continues to develop, calling God the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings, it develops into our New Testaments, which carry on this same language. And we begin to see Jesus Christ emerge as the seed or the offspring of the woman in the garden, Eve. Early on in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises the serpent that this woman, Eve, will bear a child and the child will strike the serpent's head, which is a fatal blow, and the serpent will only strike the Messiah or this offspring's heel, which is a non-fatal, non-permanent blow. So we start to see in our New Testaments Jesus emerge as this final, ultimate seed of the woman who is going to deal with the serpent, the enemy of God, in finality. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It literally means Messiah. It's a title for him, Jesus Messiah. And the apostles, those who were Jesus' followers and disciples, began to describe Jesus as this longed-for Lord of lords and God of gods and kings of kings that the Old Testament had been talking about. The apostles ascribed this to Jesus of Nazareth. So now, fast-forwarding all the way forward to the very last book of our Bibles in Revelation, this is what John the Apostle speaks of Jesus in Revelation chapter 17. They, meaning those who do the will of the serpent, they will make war on the Lamb. Jesus is also described and known as the Lamb of the God who takes away the sins of the world. And John writes, the Lamb will conquer them, those who are opposed to God, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Again in Revelation, just a couple of chapters later, 19, John writes, On his robe and on his thigh, Jesus has a name written, and that name written is King of kings and Lord of lords. These are pictures of Jesus' final victory over the serpent and all who, oppose, all who do the serpent's will, all who oppose God. And so what Revelation shows us, Revelation is not as much about telling us when the world will end. I hope you um, can recognize that. But Revelation is primarily about showing us the authority of Jesus Christ. These are pictures in Revelation of Jesus' final victory over the serpent. And Revelation shows us this Messiah who is a conqueror and whose authority and power renders us speechless. We are meant to marvel at his authority. And I look forward to the day when this king's goodness and power and authority, and beauty, and glory is visible to all of us when we can see him and see it. It's not veiled any longer. But this king, Jesus, didn't emerge as a glorious king. He emerged. He came to the scene as a humble king. He became king through humble, sacrificial, lowly, gentle means. This king was actually subdued by his own creation. You could say for a time he was conquered by his own creation. 
many of whom would defile him, would mock him, would spit at him, would abuse him, would nail his hands and his feet to giant pieces of timber and ultimately crucify him. And before crucifying him, his creation in their mockery, this is what we're told about Rome's soldiers. We're told that Rome's soldiers at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they, they knelt before him in mockery, and then they struck him with their hands, John 19 tells us. A short while later, the governor of uh, the region of Judea, he's a Roman over this region, he uh, would parade Jesus before a bloodthirsty mob of religious elites and rulers, and he would say to them in mockery of them and in mockery of Jesus who he was parading before them, Behold your king! And in this moment, they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate, again, in mockery, he says, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, the people of the people, they said, we have no king but Caesar. In this moment, they are denying Yahweh, their king. And they are denying Jesus the Christ who is standing before them, who has come initiating his kingdom. They say, our allegiance is to Caesar. They've bowed to the serpent. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. And then we learn something really uh, unsettling, but glorious in detail in John 19. So they took Jesus and he went out and he bared his own cross. He literally had to carry his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, of, of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha or Golgotha. There they crucified Jesus and him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also, he wrote an inscription and he put this inscription on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city of Jerusalem. And this inscription was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. It was written written in the languages of the people so everyone could read it. And the chief priests, they see this and they say to Pilate, "Don't, don't write the king of the Jews, but write rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Let it stand. You could feel the irony in this moment that he has his true title, even as he is being crucified. And so God as king is a theme that begins in the very beginning, the opening pages of our Bibles, and, and, and rallies all the way through to the, very, to the closing pages of our Bibles. Now, I want to take us back really quick to the story so far, the summary of where we have been so far. God created a kingdom, and he is the king, and he created human beings in his image, Adam and Eve. But the man and the woman, they rejected this call, and this led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of Abraham, who is uh, the seed of the woman. And specifically, he would do so through Abraham's his family, specifically this, this, um, this royal seed, a man named Judah. 
And it's through Judah that Abraham's blessings, that the promise of blessing would come through to the whole world. Now, last week we talked about Abraham. We spent the entire week on Abram, Abraham. He had a name change partway through. And he was when he was undergoing this name change and being reminded of how God would come through on his promises, even if Abraham didn't, I highlighted this covenant promise, but there's a sidebar within it. So I'm going to read the covenant promise, and then I'm going to highlight the sidebar. This is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Now look at this. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to, we're going to look at Abraham. We're going to look at his son, Isaac. We're going to look at Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob is going to have a couple of sons, a guy named Joseph and a guy named Judah this morning. So we're going to cover this history and we're going to do it quick. Don't let the eyes roll back in the back of your head or gloss over this morning. We will go fast. But I do want you to engage the scriptures on your own. You can't just rely on me to feed you once a week. We have to feed ourselves daily and on the regular. So Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, they end up having a, a child of promise. And this child of promise is a man named Isaac. And his name actually means he laughs because Abraham and his wife Sarah laughed when God gave him the promise because they were so old. They, in some portion of their heart, territory of their heart, they didn't believe that this could really be. But God would come to Isaac too. And he would repeat the promise to Isaac that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 26, 24. He says this, God speaking, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, Isaac, and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So we could say here at this point in the story that God is the God of Abraham and he is the God of Isaac. And at 40 years old, 40, Isaac takes a wife, a woman named uh, Rebekah from his family line, and they would marry, but together they would be unable to conceive for 20 years. So when Isaac is around 60 years old, the text tells us that he prayed for his wife, her womb was closed, and then God opened her womb and she conceived and they bore sons, two sons, miracle births, you could call them, because God, the text says, opened her womb. And these sons were Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older son, Jacob was the younger son, but the younger son would be the one who would receive the same promise that God gave to his dad, Isaac, and his granddad. Abraham. And God would come to Jacob and say this, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your, notice this, offspring. Your offspring, the people who come after you, shall be like the dust of the earth. This sounds very similar to the promise that God gave Abraham. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Are all of the directions covered? the whole world, the face of creation. And in you, Jacob, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So the promise now is given to Abraham and is given to Isaac and is given to Jacob. And just a quick side note, another theme begins to develop in Genesis that will carry, this thread will carry all the way through our Bibles in various forms. And it's this, Paul says it to a church in Corinth. He says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that nobody gets to boast in the presence of God. Abraham will do some messed up stuff. Isaac will be a faithless man near the end of his life. He'll operate in faithlessness. He's with the Lord, but the Lord redeemed that. Jacob, his name means deceiver. He was a shady character at best. Through a dysfunctional family, God will continue to bring his covenant blessings and covenant promises through to the world. God uses unlikely people in unpredictable ways to bring about his glory. Why? So that our only explanation can be, it's God who has done this. Glory be to God. We don't get to take it and steal it for ourselves. Now, this son, this grandson of Abraham, Jacob, he's going to have an encounter with God while alone in the wilderness. In Genesis chapter 32, and it's going to leave him forever changed, and he's going to get a name change too. And so God renames Jacob to the name Israel. Israel was first a man before a nation. Jacob means deceiver, Israel means he strives with God and prevails or has been delivered. At this encounter, uh, of this encounter, Jacob would say, for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered, which means uh, I've striven with God. I've wrestled with him in doubt and in unbelief. I've prevailed and God has been merciful to me. Jacob now will go on and he will father 12 boys. And these 12 boys will father their own families. And these 12 sons, these 12 boys, will become the tribes of Israel. You've heard about the 12 tribes of Israel. Makes sense, right? I know I'm going fast. I hope we're connecting dots here, putting some of the historical timeline together in Genesis. These 12 boys will live as a very dysfunctional family. They are going to rage against each other. They are going to sell one another out. They are going to be vicious to one another. Sexual sin, sin of greed and pride is all over this family. Lots of sin, lots of heartache, lots and lots and lots of mess. Nonetheless, God does not deny this family, but makes himself known for the rest of eternity as the God of this family, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob. Though they are faithless at various points in their lives, he remains to them faithful. You'll see this phrase, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew way of stating emphatically that Yahweh, this God of Israel, is the God of generations. 
He's the God who is there. He's the God who is present to his people. He's the God who does not go away. He's the God then who is here with us, present. Jacob, I'm going to call him Jacob Israel or Israel Jacob. I'm going to refer to those interchangeably. He has these 12 boys, and we're going to highlight two of these sons. We're going to highlight Joseph, and then I'm going to get to Judah. So this son Joseph emerges from his dad Israel, who seems like a key candidate to be the one who this promised offspring would come through to bless the world. And he's not. He's not the one. But he will play an incredibly key role. These 11 brothers will actually gang up on Joseph. He's a bit of a golden boy, a bit of a bragger early on in his age. God gives him the ability to have dreams and to interpret dreams. There's this prophetic kind of power upon Joseph. And in his immaturity or in his bravado, whatever it was, he'll come and announce to his, uh, to his 11 brothers, hey, I've had a dream and you guys are all gonna bow down to me. Right, he, which raises the ire of his older brothers and they have it out for Joseph. They'll actually conspire to kill Joseph. They're out in the countryside together. Joseph is kind of tending some animals and, and is sent by his father to come and communicate to them. And they see him coming and they conspire to kill Joseph. And so the way that they decide to do it is just to throw him into a pit and to leave him for dead. And instead, one of the brothers, a guy named Judah, says, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we sell him? There's some Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite traders coming down. We can see them on the road. We're on, they're on the way. Why don't we just sell him to them as a slave? They'll take him away. And they do that. They get some cash for their young brother and they strip him of a robe that his dad gave him. That was a, a costly robe. It was made of multicolored uh, fabric. And it signified that he was a bit of a golden boy and a favorite child of his dad, Israel. And so they strip this robe off of him and they slaughter an animal and they dip this robe in blood. They take it back to their dad and they say, hey, dad, we found this. The, the wild beast must have torn him to pieces. Israel believes his sons, mourns his son Joseph, all the while Joseph is alive, getting carted off south to Egypt. Joseph now, as a young guy, probably young middle schooler at this point, alone, detached from his family, carried off into a foreign nation, enslaved. He lives as a slave and as a prisoner for a period of about 13 years. He comes into adulthood as a slave. He's a, an attractive young man. He is a household servant of a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife has eyes for Joseph, tries uh, to get with him on multiple occasions, and, uh, and he rebuffs her. And in her scorn, she ends up accusing him of trying to assault her. And his husband, or her husband, um, kind of rages at Joseph and has him thrown into prison. And so Joseph languishes in prison. And in prison, um, a series of events occur where he's having dreams and people are having dreams and he begins interpreting these dreams for them correctly. The dreams come to pass and he gains a bit of a reputation in prison. At one point, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, 
has a dream and it's a conundrum for everybody, but he hears about Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams. And so he calls on Joseph to interpret a dream. And Joseph is given the meaning of this dream by the Lord and comes and he repeats it to Pharaoh. It's right, it's true. Pharaoh exalts him, in, draws him up into his government. And then Joseph continues to have dreams. The Lord tells Joseph that a famine is coming. And so Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, Pharaoh, we got to prepare for this. Pharaoh believes him, and they begin to store resources as a nation for years. And then this famine comes, and Joseph's brothers and family uh, wait out. They, they live through this famine for a couple of years, and they come to the end, two, two years, in fact, they come to the end of their resources, and they hear that Egypt has resources for sale and so they come down into Egypt. And the person that they come into contact with is actually their young brother who they sold out. They were all older brothers. He was young. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He tests them. He, he, he plays and toys with them at times. But the way that the story resolves is that he reveals himself to them. He forgives them. And he doesn't just forgive them, but he draws them down into Egypt and he provides for them and he has them bring his father down and he and his father Israel are reunited and they began to live in a region just north of, of the, the capital city of Egypt where Pharaoh is. God uses Joseph mightily to preserve the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Not only that, but Joseph provides for the Egyptians. God uses him mightily. But eventually, Joseph will die, and these brothers will die, but their offspring are, start to multiply and are still living in this region of Egypt. And another pharaoh rises up who does not remember Joseph at all and sees the good opportunity that he has of this nation within a nation. And they enslave the Israelites and they enslave them for a period of about 400 years. You got to read this stuff yourself. There's so many details I'm leaving out. So many hyperlinks and threads here. You got to just slow cook for a while in Genesis. It is an incredible setup to the rest of the scriptures. Genesis actually means origins, which means that God is using Genesis to set up the story of the Bible. And now we come to a man named Judah. From our view, from my view, this guy is a strange choice, I think, for God to carry on his line through. Again, though, God uses the foolish to confound the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Judah is this fourth-born son of Israel, of, of Jacob, and he's got a relatively minor role in Genesis. He, he, his airtime, he only gets about a chapter and a half in all of Genesis. Judah does. Joseph gets like 12 chapters, which seems weird until we understand what God is doing with Genesis, particularly with Joseph's story. Joseph gets so much airtime in Genesis primarily to teach the reader, to teach uh, us that even when things are not working out according to our timelines, according to our agendas, God is faithfully at work behind the scenes. 
how much of what has occurred in our own stories we have not understood at all in the moment. And it's only until months and years later that clarity begins to come to us. This is our, this is my experience over and over and over again. And it's the experience of, the, of those who are living in the biblical record as well. I think about even the video that we just watched of Aaron Gibbs, who lives in Slovakia, and we support Aaron. And, and, and another guy, Benjamin Morrison, came on my radar a few years ago, whose mom lives in Coeur d'Alene. So he's here visiting, and he reaches out, and he asks if we can get together, and we start to develop a friendship, just a, kind of a distant but connected friendship. And, and then last summer in August, Ben is here, and Aaron is here from Slovakia and Ukraine at the same time in Coeur d'Alene. And so we get together along with Stephen Falenko and, and we go and we have a few beers together and we enjoy one another's company and these two guys meet and begin a friendship and meet one another face to face. We just thought we were having a good time building friendship, but the Lord used those connections months and months later, to connect these guys in, in, in like an intimate, close, trusting friendship, so that now Ben is starting to. I'm on these email chains where Ben and Aaron and I are talking, and Ben's like, "Hey, I'm sending some people your way soon. I'm sending some people your way," and so he's directing them to Aaron in Slovakia to be provided for. We had no idea, Steve. Do we have any idea? No idea. This was happening. Yeah. He's working behind the scenes. The ways of man are oblivious to God. The ways of men are often opposed to God. But God has made a covenant with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And then he goes on to make covenant with Noah. And then he goes on to make covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, Israel. God will see his imperfect and foolish people through to the very end. And God chooses Judah to be a forefather of King David. And King David will be a forefather of King Jesus. The story is starting to connect for us. Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of the nations, is in a long lineage of kings. We see this lineage of Jesus back to Judah uh, affirmed in several places even in our New Testaments. You can read it in the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke, I believe it's chapter 3 maybe. Um, and it's really explicit, though, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 14, which says this, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. It's a pretty explicit statement. It is evident that our Lord is descended from Judah. Personally, like I said, there are a handful of Israel's 12 sons that I would be way more inclined to choose. Joseph would be my first choice. Because Judah did some really sketchy things, including proposing to sell his own brother Joseph instead of killing him, sold him. Not a lot better, honestly. But Judah would go on to marry a Canaanite woman who God forbid them to intermarry with. And then he would actually father a child with his daughter-in-law, another Canaanite woman named Tamar. And they would have a child together, two of them. And this one of those children, Perez, would be an ancestor of King David and then of King Jesus. God uses unlikely people to fulfill his covenant promises, to bring about his glory. 
So I want you to go, and we'll conclude here. Uh, I want you to go, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 38. We need to know a little bit about this guy, Judah. And so we're going to just read through Genesis chapter 38 here, Judah and Tamar. This is this kind of weird interjection in um, the the storyline that just highlights the, the, the author of Genesis is talking about Joseph, talking about Joseph, and then all of a sudden Judah and Tamar, and then all of a sudden back to Joseph. And it feels like, whoa, that was a kind of weird right turn, but we start to understand what was happening, what is happening, because the writer is setting up the significance of Judah in the line of this coming Messiah King. So it happened at that time, Genesis 38, that Judah went down from his brothers. At what time? At the time when they sold Joseph off into slavery. Judah went away from his brothers. He turned aside to a, cert, to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite. This Canaanite's name was Shua. Judah took her and went into her. Now, it, in Genesis, it's been explicitly stated that Abraham did not want any of his kids to marry a Canaanite. And then Isaac explicitly said that he didn't want any of his kids to marry Canaanites. And then Esau goes off and marries a Canaanite. And there's a couple of references in Genesis where Esau's wives made Isaac and Rebekah's lives bitter. But Judah here goes down and marries a Canaanite. That's why this is significant. He took her, he went into her, and she conceived, and she bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah then has three boys now, and he was in Chezeb when she bore him. That's a town in Canaan. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So this is his daughter-in-law. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay, we don't know how or under what circumstances, but apparently it was serious. The Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now in our culture, this is weird. In their culture, it was not. Uh, This would be so that the family line would continue on. Ur's family line would continue on. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. Think about that for a moment here. He is using the people around him. Think about the wickedness of this moment. He goes into Tamar, but he does not provide a son to her. He does not obey his father, Judah. He despises the command of the Lord here. So verse 10 And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put Onan to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, that's his third son, grows up. For he feared that he would die, there's some humor in here, like his brothers. The record isn't good for my boys. (laughs) It might be you, Tamar. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah... Shua's daughter died. So now Judah's wife, his Canaanite wife, dies. When Judah was comforted or after, after the time of his mourning had passed, he went up to a city, a town called Timnah, to his sheep shearers. He and his friend at the beginning, Hira, this Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she changed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Temna. Remember, they're in Canaan. 
for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She had been duped. She was going to remain a widow. That's her reality. When Judah saw her, though, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, notice the hyphen there. He cuts her off and says, What pledge shall I give you? This is a man in the grip of his passions. She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. These are all personal items of identification. It's like our passport or ID. So in this moment of passion, he foolishly, that's not in the text, but that's what the text implies. He gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked them, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enim on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. This word immoral here implies prostitution. She's committed prostitution. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. There it is again, prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Feel the hypocrisy. Bring her out and let me strike the first match. Drag her out and let me throw the first stone. That might remind us of a story of Jesus. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez or Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zira. This is... God's word. You can see the dysfunction in the soul of this man and the repercussions that his passion and his deceit and his lack of honesty and character have, as well as that of his sons. So now, at this moment in the story, when we fast forward to to Genesis chapter 49, where Israel, his dad, is giving these blessings or these pronouncements on the son, we see that uh, this pronouncement to Judah seems pretty positive. It seems rather positive. The, the notes in, in our ESV study Bible say that these, these pronouncements, they reflect something of these various sons' past actions in Genesis 49. And they tell how these descendants will also prosper in the future. And so passing from oldest to youngest, with one exception, Jacob or Israel clearly anticipates that Judah and Joseph will outshine their brothers in importance. 
together actually in Genesis 49, their blessings make up about half of Jacob's total speech over 12 sons. The pronouncements are presented using poetic imagery and language, sometimes with word plays, which occasionally make them difficult to, um, to interpret precisely, which is why we struggle with those. They're ancient, they're poetic, we need to understand history and what's the, the dots that are being connected in the biblical uh, storyline to interpret them. But here's what we see in, in Genesis chapter 49, particularly in verse 10, that Judah is a type of king in Genesis. And we see this blessing that his dad gives him, where he says, uh, he says, the scepter Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to Judah, to him shall be the obedience of peoples. And then Jacob will go on in verse 11 to say that he's going to bind his young horse to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is saying that there's coming an age when wine will flow in such abundance that it's not even going to matter that you tie your horse up to the best vine we've got because wine, wine, wine is going to be everywhere. The nation of Israel is, that's a way of saying the nation of Israel is going to be prosperous. He has even washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Here's where we'll land. Chris Bruno um, writes this. Uh, Notice, though, the, the royal language over all of this prophecy over Judah. Chris Bruno, he writes, It was to this broken family line that God promised the scepter of kingship, this ruler's staff. But the descendant of Judah would not only be the king of Israel, this descendant of Judah would be a king over the nations. Jacob prophesied that tribute and the obedience of the nations would come to the royal son of Judah, which is an amazing promise to make to such a man. These promises about the nations shouldn't catch us completely off guard. Remember the promise to Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed." If it was God's intention to restore and even expand the commission of Adam and Eve to help him rule his worldwide kingdom, and it was, then we would expect that the blessing of Abraham would go to the nations through a royal descendant of Abraham. That's exactly what's happening here. A descendant of Abraham, and more specifically as this text reveals to us, a descendant of Judah would not only bless the nations, but in doing so, he would also renew and even expand God's kingdom presence in this world. So in Genesis 49, we discovered that we discover that the seed of Abraham is also a royal seed. He's a king through whom the nations will be blessed. And as we look back on the way that God preserved his people through Joseph and even used the upside-down actions of Judah to preserve the line of promise, we can see God's relentless commitment to keeping his saving promises. In Genesis, we learn that the seed of the woman, this promised seed of Abraham, and the royal seed of Judah will be the agent through whom God will fulfill his commitment to crush the head of the serpent. Are you starting to see how the storyline is coming together? There's threads of this royalty that's beginning in Genesis that are going to carry on as we learn in our New Testaments that Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of David. 
He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of Kings over every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. This ultimate King has earned our allegiance through his perfect life, through his goodness, through his substitution for us, through his holiness, through his beauty, through his justice, through his love, through his graciousness, through his mercy, through his power, and through and for his glory. And so this morning we come to give the Lord Jesus Christ tribute. We come to sit under his word and to learn how the whole Bible is telling one unified story of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who keeps his promises. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that this is true. Thank you that you see your covenant promises through even though we fail. You see your covenant promises through, even when we shake our hands at you and scratch our heads at you and wonder why it's taking so long. We wonder why the nations rage. We wonder why things aren't as they should be and why won't you just put it all back together again? But you as the sovereign king over time and over history and over nations and peoples, You are working things out for your glory and for the glory and the good of your people. And so in this moment, we are reminded to wait on you. Would you steal our resolve within us? Would you make it firm and would you make it strong that we would be a people who look to you and who wait on you, please? In Jesus' name, would you do this? Amen.